Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor and Focus podcast, where we will be discussing advisor platforms. It is a question troubling many advice firms. Do I build my own in-house platform or continue using the technology I'm used to? Is building your own platform worth the trouble? Is it a better idea than working with what's already out there? And most importantly, does it make business sense? Here with me to discuss this today are David Ferguson, founder of Nucleus and new CEO of platform technology provider Seckle, and Mike Barrett, consulting director at Lancat. Hello both, thanks for being here today. Mike, I, I'll start straight with you and straight in. I know it's a really big question and we'll get to all the details for sure, but should advisors have their own in-house platform? Does this make business sense? For the right firm, yes. Um, but I think if you, if you look at it as a market as a whole, probably the majority of advisor firms probably won't fit the profile where it's going to be right for them and right right for their clients. So there is absolutely a place, but I think it's a market we've been looking at for a while. And if you'd asked me this question probably three or four years ago, we would have talked I think a lot more about the technology not necessarily being mature enough and ready to be implemented in an easy way and in, in, with the level of configuration that an advisor would want to bring into it. The, the technology barriers, I think, are falling down um, as really, really rapidly. The, the bigger issue, I think, is, is advisor skill set and the advisor, the ability for the firm to, to adopt and implement that, that particular change. If those skills are there, then absolutely, yes, I think it, it can be a really good solution for the advice firm and more importantly for their clients but if the skill set isn't there then yeah i think most most firms shouldn't shouldn't go near it okay i mean there are various options of, of ways of doing this aren't there um david i mean there's uh, first of all there's um just like white labeling like kind of white labeling outsourcing and then doing everything yourself building a whole thing yourself i think is an option too um can you i mean what, what does seckle do and can you can you introduce us to all those options that are available yeah just just maybe before that as well i think, I think it's important that i think yeah what mike said is correct you know there's there's a thing about for me about having control of for advisors to have control over the proposition you know and, and that's what this is about and we can get into different labels about how that happens and the degree of which we want it to happen and what the roles and responsibilities are. But ultimately, I think this, you know, advice firms, you know, really want to have more control over what they're doing and what they're delivering to their customer. They tend to have a lot of control over their offline proposition. You know, when you come into their office and how that feels and how they train their people and that's how they communicate. And then often that uh, ultimately ends up being compromised or constrained by what they can do online. So for me, whether you get into white labeling or some, you know, literally building something yourself uh, with the extreme end. You know, this is more about what, what do you want to have as your uh, as your online proposition for your clients. So what we would provide, uh, what we do provide, and this is right across um, from small fintech firms right through to big advisor groups is the capability uh, and, and you know, the, the substantial majority of the infrastructure required to run your own platform. Um, and, um, and and whether you call that white label or give it some other name, I don't I, I, personally can't get too hung up on that it's basically saying if you want to run your own thing be in control of your own destiny here's a bunch of tools that will allow you to do that on technology and uh, operational services and i think that's the you know that's the kind of really exciting part of it we've got firms we've got small fintech businesses who are you know literally startups just getting moving uh, right through to you know i think firms in the advice space that will probably end up as multi-billion pound um organizations and um, I think it can work probably reasonably well right across that spectrum. I think Mike's point is the right one that you have to have 
a certain skill set in the business and a certain orientation about how you do this. And you know, it's, I remember back actually my previous role when we started um, my last business. You know, if if people were relying on the name of Standard Life or Aviva or something to to sell a platform. They were never going to be right for us, you know. But but if if advice firms are confident in who they are and what their brand is, and that's what they're selling every day, then I think this can this can be for them. And and what would they what would an advice firm kind of need to, to for, for them to for them to make for for this to make sense for them? So would it is is it a case of literally having technology experts having a lot of money, being a certain size? Um, what are the kind of what's the best kind of you know starting position for an advice from wanting to run their own platform? I think the starting position is knowing what they want to build for their customers. You know, <laughs> I think that's really is the first thing. So having real clarity, this is what we're all about. This is as a firm we want to show up. This is what we want to deliver to our customers, and then choosing uh, to assemble that or choose vendors in a way that matches that. I think anyone who says. I want to build my own platform, but I don't know what it is yet. It's going to be off to a bad start, you know. So I think always start with what it is you're trying to build, and then decide um, whether or not Secular or anyone else is, is the right answer for that. And I think there's then a piece about skill sets, which, but that that flows from what it is you're going to build as a as a piece of work. I mean, it's really interesting. I didn't know this at all before I joined Secular, but the the lived experience of firms on Secular is they end up with a smaller team running their own platform than they do chasing after. Um, existing platforms. So this idea that suddenly you have to have lots more people would appear to be untrue. I mean, that, that that would be the evidence so far. Um, and if you spoke to the people that do this with Seco just now, uh, that they would tell you that. But um, so I think it's probably slightly easier than these days than maybe is given credit. I think Mike makes a really good point. I think three or four years ago, this was an altogether different different proposition. Some people had, um, I think, pretty mixed experiences probably uh, with some of the providers at that time. I think as well, a, a good way of kind of looking at what, what type of firm this might be suitable for and and how it could be adopted is, is to think of the type of firm who might have taken on their own discretionary permissions. So it's a, it's a different solution, slightly adjacent to kind of platforms and the, the topic we're talking about today. But I, I think it, it, it feels to me it's a little bit more familiar to advisors because it's, it's, it's something which they've lived through, particularly with MIFID, making it much harder to, to run investment propositions, advisory portfolios from kind of 2018 onwards. A lot of firms have looked at potentially taking on their own discretionary permissions to, to remove some of that operational admin pain and to take control of what's going on, the types of thing David talked about. But um, yeah, the, the stats show that it's something like 8% of firms uh, have got their own discretionary permissions and end up taking down, going down that path. And it's skill set, it's kind of um, having having access to more resources. And that's not necessarily um, assets under advice, assets under administration or, or that metric. It's more having, I guess, uh, a, a leadership at Exco who are focused in the, in the case of discretionary permissions on, on the investment side. So qualified investment specialist is something which the FCA will look at. You'll have the cost of, of potentially kind of creating another entity and impact on the PI and that both those things as well. And yeah, for, for firms who want to go down the discretionary route, that that's something that they will have to put in place. And I think it's similar for, for, for firms wanting to adopt a platform market as well. They're, they're going to have to have dedicated resources and 
yeah, we're, I know firms who've gone down this path and it's noticeable their, their leadership are IT specialists, their business change specialists, and they're people who understand this. And they almost certainly, for the majority of those, that leadership, they don't do financial planning. They'll have financial clients in the organization who are qualified and experienced and chartered and all the rest of it. But yeah, they're not trying to mix and match their roles and be a financial planner in the morning and an IT specialist in the, in the afternoon. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right, Mike. I, I, I think there's a thing about um, basically being people that are serious about this sort of stuff. You know, I think if it's the sort of thing you think you can dip a toe in, that's um, that's probably an error um, and going to lead to a bad outcome for, for frankly for everybody. And I think it's probably really important when people are like people in our part of the of the the chain. It's pretty important, I say, that we 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 make it clear that people know what it is they're trying to achieve before they start and. And I think that was true, frankly, of the older platforms as well. It was, you know, it was kind of wrong to choose any platform if you didn't know what you were trying to deliver to customers. This is just an evolution of it for me. Um, you know, you've seen this happen in in the e-commerce space or various places over the years where technology's moved on and just made stuff much easier. And if you, you know, 20 years ago, if you wanted to build your own, own e-commerce site, you had to hire a bunch of developers and have, you know, huge infrastructure to make that happen. And now you can run it on, um, you know, on, on Amazon services or on um, something like Shopify. And I think, although this is a regulated activity, the kind of a lot of the functional analogy stacks up pretty well, I think. And as long as you're running a proper business and sensible people, and as Mike says, if you've got a, I mean, all these people run regulated businesses already, and some of them run uh, regulated businesses with discretionary permission. So the kind of disciplines in the business are not necessarily dramatically different um i think it's also incumbent on the providers of technology or operational services to make sure they're incredibly transparent and open and sharing all the data and all the insights that are required to do this properly and if uh you know if you're sitting there and some fund is mispriced a week ago and that's got to be addressed and put back together again and any remediation sorted out it's important that you've got business partners that are on top of that stuff keep you in the loop so you can keep customers aware of what's going on and what what might be looking a bit awry in their in their portfolios and you know i, th- I think uh, the alternative is you go well yeah we've got this thing and i, th- I think those who've approached it just because they think they're going to make a lot of money out of it it's going to be a bad that's going to be a bad outcome right <laughs> that's, it's just not going to not going to play it well um equally i think there is a, a massive spread of probably you know i don't know uh 10 to 10 to 16 18 basis points between the sort of revenue yield of a circle or a hub wise and what you'd pay for a full retail platform and you know it, it seems to be entirely doable that you can um that you can do this in that in that range and give the customer a better deal um and take more control over your proposition which is which is a good thing i think i was going to come to the to the to the money side um in a second but just first um am i right in thinking that when it comes to regulation and how this is regulated you have different options right you can either be the the kind of um, person that is regulated for the platform, or you can outsource this as well. Yeah, there's lots of different models. I mean, it's like um, like so many parts of the sector. There's when you get into discretionary stuff, there's different activities, different way of doing discretionary permissions. It's the same here. I mean, if you th- if you talk of like uh, literally branding or you know shapes and colors, literally all I'm changing is that. I mean, most retail platforms can do that anyway. I mean, we were doing that at Nucleus 15 years ago. So you know, that that in itself isn't a terribly, certainly isn't what you consider innovation in, in, in this this time in history. I see all the way through to the extreme where you do you do everything and you take responsibility for everything. I mean, ultimately, 
in our in our model uh there are actually different variants of it but the, the predominant one is you know we uh, the the advice firm comes or the or the fintech or whatever comes along and is the is becomes a platform operator and we we provide um you know virtually all the services behind that with the exception of the kind of customer contact and you know because we're obviously regulated for all that activity as well um while the advice firm also has to have the regulatory permission but more important is they can they can really see what's going on in our business and what's going on and on what's their platform and you know we're, we're obviously going to consider the regulatory capital position that sort of stuff as well now you've already kind of alluded to the um the cost part or the cost savings part rather um i mean schroeder's alex funk has recently said that um advisors who own their own platforms run the risk of putting a margin grab before the best client outcomes what's your view on that both of you um start with david yeah, I think it's I think it's interesting. Um, I mean, Shona's owns its own platform, I think, anyway, in benchmark. So that's an interesting statement for him to make. And you know, for a retail asset manager to be making statements about margin grab is just kind of somewhat fascinating to me. I think it's the wrong way to look at it. Um, I say ultimately, if you're building this with the right intentions, the right customer proposition, um, I, I think that's far more interesting and far more important than um, going to the kind of lazy thing that people are just trying to make money out of it. Um, so uh, yeah. I go, I go back to my earlier point. If, if people are doing it for the right reason and they know what they're trying to build, then it's an entirely appropriate model uh, for some. Um, if, if people are doing it just to try and screw a few basis points out the customers, I suspect that will end badly one way or another. Yeah, I think the, uh, like, like David, I kind of smile when I hear the words margin grab coming coming from a provider and, and Schroeder's are uh, certainly one of the more sensible ones which, which, which are out there. But it's it's always kind of there's a, a little bit of a vested interest in in protecting their own margin whether that's schroeder's or david with his own margin or whatever and obviously it's an independent consultant i can i can take a little bit more of a balanced view perhaps around all of this um i think the the whole topic of kind of margin and who is grabbing margin and where it's sitting and where which areas are a little bit more inflated than others um i suspect that's going to become quite a hot topic over the next 12 months when the value for money assessments that are going to land into the advisor space start to get rolled out through consumer duty and advisors in particular really start to not necessarily think about what that means but work through the practicalities of actually what that means so the requirement that an advice firm is going to have to assess the value for money that not only their charge represents but the total charge that the customer represents and in doing so they're going to have to get hold of value for money statements that the manufacturers such as second or shoulders are going to be producing is going to force advisors just to kind of reassess and and look at kind of decisions which have been made and i suspect there might be a few kind of decisions which were made maybe three, four, five years ago. And as I said, the technology has moved on since then. Propositions have changed both in the platform space and to be fair to Alex in the, in the MPS space as well. You might just see advisors um, just start, as I said, they, they, they will be required by regulation to think about value for money to, and to ensure that their customers are paying value for money. And cynically, I suspect a few advisors might decide that the best way to protect their charge is to beat up the providers in the in the value chain and get a little bit lower margin lower costs for for the platform and for the investment solution as well so yeah big 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 topic i think coming through over the next 12 months yeah i agree with that i think it's really interesting because just as um you know rdr 
probably it's probably the other way around then actually when rdr trigger trigger the chain from fund supermarkets to rap platforms in this instance you've got digital technology challenging the rap platform technology but you've also got that catalyzed by the consumer duty um so you've got in, in both instances you had a combination of regulatory change and technology change and you know if you look at the three dominant fund supermarkets back in 2006 which would have been scandia co-funds and funds network had i think 94 percent of net inflows at that point and at one at one stage post rdr that fell as low as 17 percent uh because they just weren't ready for that that seismic shift and how things worked and you know between them they probably spent um whatever i don't know you'll know mike billion one half billion pounds or something get keeping themselves relevant or making themselves relevant again and i think when you get these big technology changes um it, it, it doesn't come for free because the point we haven't touched on yet here which i think is relevant in this context is around about connectivity of different systems and how they integrate together and how that helps the efficiency and comes to pricing right across the chain so you talk about advice fees and i think you're probably right mike advisors probably will take the opportunity to beat up platforms or um asset managers but they probably also take the opportunity to make themselves more efficient by using technology that connects to one another and and, and makes their own operating costs lower and you can only do that if you've got proper you know kind of api based technology if you're trying to build that on a kind of old system you won't achieve the, the efficiencies that might be might be required i suppose the consumer duties about service as well as value for money is white labeling a way of getting of giving a more tailored service as well as perhaps moving away from multiple platforms i think it can do um i think certainly the, the point we was raised earlier about kind of control of proposition and being able to really kind of um, shape the proposition exactly how the advice firm wants to deliver it is is a real attraction to this for for for, for most advice firms. Um, in my experience, the, the the technology has really grown up in the last few years. So kind of the the, the front and the end of the, the client process, if you like. So the onboarding stuff that's available through various online fact-find services, going into, into integrating with cash flow tools is there. There's a, a number of client portals out there which allow clients to, um, to go on and see what's happening with their financial plan. And obviously, to this time, two years ago, everyone was using those, whether you liked it or not. And that's really been quite... Um, uh, kind of an acceleration of the adoption as, as a result of the, of the events of the last two years. But I think the issue with service tends to be in the middle of the process where the, the majority of clients, I think, that go through an advice business are still coming in, kind of starting to approach retirement, early 50s, have worked for about five or six employers through their career, have got five or six investments elsewhere. So they've got a dozen or so kind of pots, wrappers, whatever you want to call it. And then the advisor has to go into the world of collecting letters of authority and then potentially doing transfers. And that's where the real pain sits. That That's part of the overall advice journey. I was going to say is paper. It's kind of worse technologies than paper, really. It's um, back, back into the days of yeah, kind of faxing stuff through and God knows what else. And... I think that that's where the problem sits for a lot of advisors and the frustrations you hear about advisor advisor and customer services and loads of examples which would be a clear breach under consumer duty kind of sits in that part of the process and I'm not sure how much of running an advisor your own advisor platform 
shield you from that. You're still going to have to go to Dinosaur Life Co. and request a letter of authority, which takes 10 weeks to arrive and then expires a week later. And then you have to get it again. And then you try and do a transfer. And I was speaking to an advisor earlier today who was doing it from a pretty well-known company, not a Dinosaur Life one. And they extract doing the in-species transfer at the start of January and it still hasn't gone through. Those types of delays, it's you can control it a little bit more if you're running your own platform, but you're still at the mercy of whoever it is you're trying to get information and data and in some cases the product transferred out of. That's where the real problem sits. Yeah, I think that's right, Mike. Um, I, I, I maybe just add to that, everything Mike said is obviously correct. I, I think the additional, maybe the, the benefit here of doing it yourself is you're disintermediating the stage where you're speaking to the retail platform to then chase someone on your behalf you can do it more directly so you to the fact that i think it's pretty well documented a lot of these providers don't answer the telephone they don't respond to messages for endless uh you know hours and days uh, you're removing that step now obviously what you're doing is putting the burden of um some of that activity into the advice firm right but at least you're taking away the additional uh, the additional bit in the middle but yeah i mean the general point about people's propensity to to perform transfers in an orderly manner is going we've been talking about this for 20 years i think <laughs> and every time it gets a bit better the regulator backs off and then the industry gets really awful at it again and the industry and regulator barks again and everyone then it goes in that cycle um yeah i mean yeah, and, and, and you're right mike that is a big part of service but service is also like if i want some money can i get it today how long do i have to wait for a transfer out and uh, as in a cash payment into my bank account and you know again i'm probably not here to do a sales pitch for circle but you know like we do that in 13 seconds right so from the minute you hit up the screen to your bank account and that that's not normal uh in our in our space and that's a, that's a to me that's a service feature which uh which is hugely valued you don't get at the moment across the industry in general but i mean just to reinforce the point you make carmen they all of the kind of the bad examples which which i've referred to and david's talked about are clear breaches under consumer duty under the service standards there and advisors will need to assess the providers which they're working with as part of their their platform selection and platform due diligence and will need to make sure that they're partnering with somebody that isn't going to make them look stupid and compromise their own service standards so it should it should see a, a real improvement in 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 service and technology as part of that going forward but as ever the question will be how quickly and how rigorously the regulator decide to to enforce it or not yeah i think oh yeah that's right mike it'd also be great if customers had more power here or, or even advisors because you know some of these organizations we talk about are massive on preaching on things like esg and if you take the g part of that you know it's not okay to have a company where you know everyone's making a lot of money and everyone's making big bonuses and and there's a terrible service proposition and that's been allowed to per perpetuate a long, long time, and these companies make massive profit margins, crap systems, terrible service ethic, and yet they're preaching on about you know governance to the rest of rest of society. I just find that really, really uncomfortable, to be honest. And they they should be held to account for that. And whether that's um, the way that advisors deal with them or customers escalate issues, it's it's not right. It's just it's just it's just not acceptable. So we've we've heard quite a bit about where providers are failing. But um, David, what's your philosophy on, on what a platform should be for an advice firm? What's the perfect platform? What need does it serve? What should I, it do? I, I think it's as, as simple as, as making it 
as effective as possible for people to connect with their money as effective as they can. I mean, it's as simple as that. And we've got there's layers of regulation and tax wrapper and product complexity here, obviously, but ultimately just trying to remove all the friction. I think it's, that's the job. We know that advisors were pretty fed up with all the um, replatforming problems um, in recent years. Um, and, and there was a, net, a Next Wealth survey um, a year ago, I think, which found that a lot of advisors were thinking about um, kind of starting their own um, white label platform. But then or I think that, that survey was probably two years ago or three years ago. But then a year later, that interest waned dramatically. What, what do you make of that? Yeah, so it, it's something we, we, we do similar research with, with, with advisors. I think it's, I suspect that was more of, of a feature that it's, an, it's kind of an emerging, evolving market. And, and as I said earlier, the, the technology has moved quite rapidly and evolved quite rapidly. And if you look at the technology in isolation on some of these services, they look really good. They look like they were built and designed and coded in the last... 24 months by someone who knows and understands coding rather than some of the older platforms which look like they were built 24 years ago in some in, in some cases um but i think there's i think it goes back to what we said earlier it's the reality check of okay how am i going to implement this and that that's i was, I was going to say inertia but that that kind of has negative connotations in some respects advisors are rightly cautious of moving from one platform to another even in a normal platform to platform environment um, and particularly I, I again advisor i was speaking with earlier was talking about some of the MA activity and consolidation that's happening in, in in amongst if you like normal platforms makes her question if i'm going to move from one platform because i've said they've got terrible service what happens if they actually get taken over by the platform which i'm going to move to and i have to explain to my clients that they've yeah you've kind of jumped out of the fire back into the fire in six months time so that yeah un under normal circumstances we see a big difference between kind of the the amount of advice the number of advisors who are saying yes i've reviewed my choices of platforms and i'm thinking of making a move versus those who actually do make a move and i think that number is even less for, for the reasons we've talked about if you're moving to an advisor as a platform model i think it's as it's, it comes to the point i guess i tried to make earlier you, you i think if you're purchasing platform services either on behalf of a client or on behalf of your firm so it can then be out to your client the closer you can be to that business and its management and its involvement in that what's going on there and control over what you're building and, and the, the, the control over the durability of what's being built i think is a, is a really big theme and you know that can happen in some of the retail platforms it's not that it doesn't happen you know some platforms are really good at that stuff and some, some less so you know but what you don't want to have a situation it could be a replatforming thing it could be a repricing thing it could be complete change in strategy it could be you know service model collapses for all sorts of different reasons and i think what what is uncomfortable it, it, what changed here really big time 20 years ago is in the old days advisors sold stuff on behalf of their client on behalf of providers right and got paid a commission that's how we all got here and then flipped completely the advisors bought stuff on behalf of their clients and got paid a fee by the client and that, that is the fundamental underlying driver here and if you're responsible for buying stuff on behalf of your clients rather than selling stuff on behalf of providers, you have to start with what am I trying to sell these clients and how can I buy it in the most efficient way that's likely to endure and survive and be 
and I've got influence over how good it is. Uh, that to me, that's a really fundamental part of this. Um, and if you don't have that, and obviously businesses get bought and sold all the time, we all we all know that. Uh, if you have no line of sight or no, or frankly, no regard even for that, and you're just sort of somewhat going along with it, then I think that's a really uncomfortable place to be actually and whether that's whether you've got a line of sight over a platform sort of advisory board or user groups whatever it is you know you, you need to be in these things or else you're just you're almost just kind of going going with the flow and then you've got the risk that things change and you weren't aware of it and you haven't thought about how to you know kind of how to plan for that absolutely and that seems like an excellent uh, place to stop um as we've just run out of time Thank you very, very much for your time today. Um, I'm sure we'll be talking about this, um, this, uh, these issues for the next one to ten years. I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully not ten years, but um, it will keep. Uh, it will. It will stay on our radar for sure. Thank you for uh, listening. I hope you found it useful. And tune in again next time. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.